Well, good morning, Chapel City. I think I have all the technology turned on. Uh, if not, somebody let me know, would you? Uh, when Pastor Matt asked me to uh, fill uh, the pulpit for him, um, I was trying to think what would be a good topic to speak on. For those of you that are maybe new to Chapel City or you're watching us online for the first time, uh, I am not the senior pastor. I'm actually somewhere down about five, I think, on the uh, pecking order around here uh, between Matt and then Nathan and Charlie and Walter, and I'm down here, so that's fine. Um, welcome. I'm glad you're here. Given the events of the past few weeks, I thought it would be helpful for us to take a moment and reflect biblically on what's happening over in the Middle East. Just to put in perspective what's happening, one year ago today, one year to this very date, many of you were in Jerusalem shopping. You were finishing up your trip to Israel, you were doing those final things. Some of you were getting tattoos. That was a first for me on Israel trips. Eating at Al Nasser's restaurant in the old city Arab quarter. Going home, packing your souvenirs, and heading to fly home that night back to the United States. That was one year ago today. What a difference a year makes. My fall got blown up on October 7th, literally. Um, I, it was a Saturday morning, and uh, I got up a little bit early. I, did, I have a habit of checking my cell phone to see if any texts came in overnight. I noticed my WhatsApp texts were lighting up like a Christmas tree. I thought, what in the world? I started reading through that. One of our staff families who was in Israel announced we're in the bomb shelter. Sirens are going off. We're hearing jet fighters overhead. Uh, something major is happening. And that's all they said. Now, that has a way of getting your attention real fast. And by 6.30 in the morning, my phone was ringing from our director of IBEX. Many of you guys had gone to Israel know Jason Beals. He's calling me saying, Greg, we got an issue. Something big has happened down on the Gaza border. This isn't the usual thing of firing rockets in. They've actually come into the country. Now, I will not rehearse with you all that happened on that October 7th morning. But for me, it disrupted about the next week became rather epic. Trying to evacuate 30 kids out of the Middle East get them on the first flights out that we could find, move them back into the United States. And of course, I was doing everything for that first. In addition to being a, normally a teacher, I was asked to be not only a travel agent, I was asked to be an uh, a interpreter of State Department memos and notifications coming out, answering hundreds and hundreds of questions about what's going on in the Middle East. And then finally, working with news crews, when I went to pick the kids up at LAX, I had news crews wanting to interview us on this. So I thought maybe it would be helpful for my church if I could take some time with all of you and sort of walk you through a biblical understanding of this. And that's my concern. How do we biblically think about the events that have happened? For those of you that went to Israel, you can picture people that we knew over there, that you met when you were there, who are still there. So what I'd like to do this morning is just quickly, in the time that I've got, and we'll do this quick, I feel a little bit challenged in the sense that I'm going to have to kind of take us through 4,000 years of complex history in less than 25 minutes. No problem. We'll do this. So to start us off, I want to just sort of introduce, and I'm hoping this will work, with these two pieces out of Economist magazine. 
asking a very important question, the one on the left, where does this end? Now, what's interesting, folks, is that was written, that article was back in 2011. And then most recently, re-asking the question, where will this end? Just a couple weeks ago. And people are asking that. There's a story that's told, I've heard this many times in Israel, about a scorpion who wanted to cross the Jordan River. So he approached a fish and he said, if you'll take me across the Jordan River, I would really appreciate it. And the fish said to the scorpion, I'm not going to do that. That's crazy. If I take you across this river and we get about halfway across this river and I bump you or something happens, you're going to sting me and I'm going to die. And then you'll die because you'll drown. Scorpion said, no, no, that's not going to be a problem. It'll be fine. Just trust me. We'll do this. We'll, we'll make it work. It'll happen. So finally, the fish decides, okay, I'll do it. And they get, Scorpion climbs on the fish's back, starts swimming across the Jordan River. About halfway across the river, they hit a little turbulence. The fish starts rocking a little bit. The scorpion stings the fish. The fish looks back at the scorpion and says, why did you do that? We're now both of us are going to die. Scorpion responds, hey, it's the Middle East. Now, some people don't get that joke. And, you know, Israelis will die laughing at that. It's the way it is over there, okay? So we have this struggle that has been ongoing. We watch it in the news. Many of us remember 50 years ago, the Yom Kippur War. Uh, this, many Israelis are talking about this event, very similar in terms of surprise and unexpected. Uh, a lot of things we could talk about. If you ever want to ask me, just to ask me. We talk politically about this. But uh, certainly this question is on everybody's mind. When is this going to end? Now, to understand this, folks, you may feel a little bit like this. The muddle east. <laughs> It can get very confusing. And to, for me to try to distill this out for all of you and put all the different layers of groups and uh, religious dynamics and political dynamics and ethnic dynamics on top of these layers can be very complex. That's why I want today to stick to more of a biblical understanding of this. Uh, I was in a Middle Eastern uh, store recently. I saw this. It's kind of found disconcerting. ISIS dates in California. Now, if you don't know who ISIS is, it won't make any sense to you. Another one of the terror groups that operates in the Middle East. So why should we study the Middle East? Why take the time this morning, carve into our time here as a congregation together, and study the Middle East? Let me offer three things for you as we sort of set up what I want to do this morning with you. Number one, we need to appreciate God's strategic providence in this part of the world. You know, it's interesting, there's a lot of conflict worldwide, obviously. And I won't rehearse the news to you now. But why is it this little area, very small little area, garners so much attention in the world press? I don't think that's accidental. I think that's actually providential. In this little corner of the universe that some of you guys visited with me last year, there's a reason why this. One of my friends who's Jewish one time said to me, you have to understand, Jews are news. And there's a lot of truth in that. So let's understand this area. Secondly, to recognize the direction of human history. Folks, things are moving somewhere. And we need to understand where history is going. Now the good news, hold the phone, because next week, Matt's talking about Zechariah. Oh, this is going to be so much fun. Zechariah is good stuff. But I don't want to steal his thunder, so I'll leave it for him. History is moving somewhere, folks. 
And we can be either on board with that or we off board with it, but it's going. Let's understand where history is moving. And then finally, number three, I'd like to change some ignorance about this area. One of the things I have fought and fought and fought is over the years I've been involved with going over to Israel, teaching, I have taught history of modern Israel, modern men at least more times than I can count, are people that will come to me and just, they're showing what I call a Fox level news understanding of the problem. And that's not healthy. We want to be clear on this biblically. What is happening over there from a biblical perspective? Not necessarily from a news perspective. Um, I find that, you know, I've, I've, you know, I'm telling Kelly this, there were times that during the last few weeks where I'd have people calling me and they would, you know, offer advice. And I'm thinking, oh gosh, you know, I, it just doesn't work over here. It's not part of the Middle East. So I want to kind of maybe help you understand a little bit of that this morning as we work through this material. Now to do this, I want to begin by thinking biblical triangulation. Now what I mean by this, folks, is that I've spent a lot of time in the backcountry. I, I love navigation. It's something I've taught my kids. Um, we need to triangulate, get our bearings. Where are we at? Of course, some of you in the military know you got map and compass or maybe a GPS, whatever it would be. We've got to get our bearings. What is going on in the Middle East? Let's get our bearings. And there are a couple of ways to think about how do we get our bearings. One way, this is not to get it. If I could be quite frank, folks, news is entertainment. It is designed to get ratings. Or if it's not news, it's social media, it's tr to get hits. And I don't need to tell you, folks, the falsity that can happen, the one-sidedness that can happen, the, the, the level of misinformation that can happen, often sensationalistic or more dangerously simplistic to understand the problem that's going on over there. So this is not the way I'm going to triangulate. People are kind of surprised. Well, do you follow the news? Like, not much. I do have some new sources I use, and we could talk later privately if you want to ask me, but for the most part, I don't follow the news. So how do we triangulate then? Well, this may come as no surprise. I'm going to say go to Scripture. This is eternal truth. I can anchor myself here. I can navigate here. Don't navigate off Fox. Don't navigate off CNN. Please. <laughs> All right. So let's get this started. Let's talk about the three keys to the Middle East. How do we understand this? Okay, I'm gonna, this is very simple. If you're keeping notes this morning, there are three P's. I'll make this very simple for you. The first thing is a person. There's a biblical significance with a person that we need to look at. Secondly, there is a place. Now, some of you last year, last fall, uh, we sat in this room and I did a little brief overview of why the land of Israel is so strategic geopolitically. We'll talk about that for a moment here, just review a few things. For some of you that were not in the class, this will be new information for you to help you kind of frame why this area is so predominant in our news. Why is this place significant biblically? And then finally, a plan, that things are moving in a direction. Now again, any one of these folks I could spend weeks on, days on. I, I'm not going to do that. But there is a person that we have to keep in our mind. The story of the Middle East conflicts begins with this person. It then moves to a place, the strategic place promised to this person, and then a plan for the descendants of this person. Tracking where I'm going here, folks. 
Y'all awake with me? Okay, good. I don't want to lose anybody here. You, know, you start falling asleep, I'll give pop quizzes real quick, all right? That's when I'm good at that. Fair enough? So thinking, folks, think about this. Who is this person? What is this place as we walk through it? And what is the plan for this person? All of human history, folks, hinges on this. Now, if you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like you to turn to the book of Genesis. We'll start in the beginning, Genesis chapter 12. Now, I'm going to take you to a couple different passages. We're not going to stay in any one particular passage long, but let's start with Genesis 12. Now, if you're new to the faith and you've never studied the Bible much, the book of Genesis is the first book of the Bible, obviously, and it's the beginning. It's 50 chapters. It's divided into two parts. It's very easy to structure the book of Genesis. Basically, folks, chapter 1 to chapter 11 focuses on four major events. You have the creation, the fall of man, the flood, most of us know the story of Noah and the ark, and the Tower of Babel. Four major events. We come to Genesis 12, to the end of the book in chapter 50, you have four key individuals. You have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then of course the story of Joseph. So four events, four individuals. Now, when we come to chapter 12, where I'm dropping you in your Bible right now, we have the story of Abraham. Now, this individual is the pivot point of really all human history. We read in Genesis 12, this man of faith, that God tells him to do something. Look at Genesis 12, verse 1. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house. Leave what you know, Abraham or Abram at this point, to the land which I will show you. There's a land that he's moving to. He's not from this land, but he's going to go to this land. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. And your name, I'll make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, all of the families of the earth will be blessed." Now, what am I talking about here? When we talk about the biblical biographical significance of this individual, we're talking about the character of Abraham. Now, if you were to ask me, brothers and sisters, to explain the whole Bible in five minutes, I would basically tell you that all of human redemptive history begins with this man. From Abraham, God begins for the rest of the Bible, begins from this point forward, begins identifying there's a specific person. Eventually, a nation will come from this person as we go through our Old Testament. The story of that nation, and as we've been going through this on Sunday morning at church, we're in the back half of this nation before it gets punished by God for what it's doing. Eventually, from this nation will come a redeemer of all mankind. So even if you're not Jewish... From this nation will come a Savior, a Messiah. All of human history is going to pivot right here in your Bible with this man. And God makes a covenant. God basically says to this man, I will make this promise, unconditional of anything you do. And by the way, there are some who disagree with me, and that's okay, they're wrong. I don't mind it. Who think this is a conditional covenant. It is clear in Scripture. This is not conditional. There's nothing, nothing did I say nothing? Nothing that the children of Israel could do to forfeit this covenant. 
It is entirely up to God. Now, God makes this covenant, if you just jump a couple verses over, a couple chapters over to Genesis 15. Now, God promises again, reminds Abraham, I'm going to do this. Now, Abraham's aging. Abraham's a fun guy to study. I'm currently reading a biography on Abraham. I'm loving it. Um, but, folks, he's an interesting person. And as he's aging, he's kind of wondering, well, when's this going to happen? When's this going to happen? When's this going to happen? Finally, you know, God comes back to him and says, I'm going to make it happen. Watch this. God takes him, look at chapter 15, verse 6, or 5, back up to verse 5 of Genesis. And he took him outside, now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said, so shall your descendants be. Verse 6 is the pivot. Then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned to him as righteousness. Abraham's faith, he trusted God with this. Now what follows that here is a very solemn ceremony. I won't read it all to you. Maybe you can read it this afternoon for the sake of time where God makes what is called a blood covenant with himself. It's a very serious covenant. What they would basically do, to paraphrase what you would read, is the two people that were partying or covenanting together would take an animal, they would kill the animal, cut it in half, set its parts aside, and then the two would go through the covenant together and basically say, may this happen to us if either of us violate this covenant. Now, if you go back and read this carefully, you will notice, folks, that there are multiple animals involved. This is a very serious covenant. And Abraham is not allowed to participate. God goes through it alone. In other words, God is making a vow to himself that I will do this. And so you have the seriousness of this covenant. Now, there are two central points with this that I would like to make. He makes first this covenant with Abraham that I am going to make you a great nation, I am going to give you a land. From you, Abraham, all of the nations, all of us who are Gentiles, non-Jewish, will be blessed through you. Now, in addition to this, as I keep moving faster this, you have the children of Abraham. As most of you guys know, Abraham will have two children. Those two children, folks, if we look at this, let me skip past here in the notes. These are the, what I've just read with you. By the way, look at, if you just jump over here to Genesis 17, let's just look at this real quickly here in the notes. Genesis 17, this is a, he reiterates the covenant with him in chapter 17 of Genesis. If you read Genesis closely, folks, God keeps reiterating this covenant. I'm making this promise to you over and over and over again. Verse 7, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for, and notice this, an everlasting covenant. It's not a covenant that's going to go away. It's not a covenant that can be forfeited. It's not a covenant that you know, somehow could be abrogated and it would not happen. To be God to you and to your descendants after you. And I will, now notice verse 8, I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, what will become known as the land of Israel. All of the land of Canaan, for, and notice the words here, an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So he had this promise of God, you're my man, Abraham, this land is going to be your land, this land is going to be the land of your descendants. Now, as we walk through this, let's jump over in our Bibles to Jeremiah, and this will tie into what Pastor Matt has been teaching us. So go to Jeremiah 31 here. Again, Jeremiah is kind of in what I call the crispy section of our Bible. Jeremiah 31. 
And look at verse 35. Now, as Matt has been teaching us through the minor prophets and doing a magnificent job, I might add, we know that God is about to judge the nation. He's already judged the ten northern tribes. They fall into captivity in 722. He had warned them of this. It ties back. If you like to make notes and kind of cross-reference information, this is Leviticus 26 as a form of discipline. When I discipline you, the final step of discipline will be exile. I'm going to drive you out of this land. And they're on the edge of that as we've been going through the minor prophets. It's already happened to the ten northern tribes. It's about to happen to the two southern tribes. But in the midst of this warning regarding judgment, God reminds them of something positive. Look at verse 35 here. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth, the highest name for God that anybody could invoke, is his name. Now notice what he says. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel will also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth can be searched out below, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Now, folks, what that is saying is basically the sun will stop shining, the stars will cease existing, the ocean will go crazy, before this ever happens. The point is, it's not going to happen. Because if, if, if this happens, you've got a bigger problem, actually, right? That isn't going to happen. Israel will always be a nation to me. Now, as we follow through with this here, obviously there are two children. This is part of the story of the Middle East. There is a promised son, Isaac, the son of promise, Remember I said you can divide the book of Genesis and the back half of it, four individuals, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, and it's tracing this out. Isaac is the son of promise through the nation of Israel will rise up, eventually Jacob, his son, the 12 tribes of Israel, and on it goes. We were to study out Old Testament history. But there was another son, a half-son from Hagar, the slave. I won't go into the backstory on that, but this one becomes the descendants of many of the Middle Eastern people that conflict with Israel. You have the Ishmaelites, and you have the Jews. So all of our Middle East, we could go back 4,000 years and begin to see the seeds of discontent as these two brothers fight each other for this territory and rights. Now, as we walk through this here, there's a place that's important. So you have a man, you have Abraham, you have a person who God makes this covenant with and says, I'm going to give you this land. You're going to possess this land. Your descendants are going to, dis- going to occupy this land. But this place is significant where God places them. I think one of the things I never understood, when I was a seminary student, I did not fully appreciate, I think, geography the way I do now. And some of you heard me tell my story on this. I won't repeat it now. But realizing that, that God does not waste words. Everything is important in the Bible. And the place is important. And as I began studying the place, it dawned on me, I came to the quick realization that, man, I've been missing this in my own understanding of the importance of where this geographically is. Now, for some of you that went with us to Israel, this will be review. But look at this quote. Indeed, I will greatly bless you. This is, by the way, being repeated to Isaac. 
the son of promise. And I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed, that is your descendants, shall possess the gate of their enemies. Now that sounds really odd to us. What do you mean, possess the gate of their enemies? Well, let me show you why that idea of a gate, they're going to go, want to go through you. You go through a gate, right? What is this possessing of a gate? What does that really mean? Well, look at this with me. Ezekiel 5, another spot in the crispy section of your Bible. Thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. I have set her at the center of the nations with lands around her. Folks, the center of the universe, the center of the world is not Washington, D.C., Certainly not Sacramento. Why do you laugh? All right, I'll stay, I'm staying out of politics. Don't touch it. Not my lane. The center of God's plan is Jerusalem. You wonder why this place is always in the news? <laughs> it is the center of God's plan. I think sometimes we can kind of falsely think America is this. Now, I'm very patriotic. I just put that out there. For you guys to say, oh, you're not very patriotic. No, 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 you don't know me. But I'm telling you, the center of God's plan is this little place called Israel. That's why they're always in the news. So thinking about this for a moment, folks, notice what God says in Deuteronomy, reminding the people they're on the edge of going into the land of Israel. Moses is giving them their final challenges and instructions before they cross the River Jordan and head off to a place called Gilgal and eventually to Jericho. Regarding this land, a land for which the Lord your God cares, the eyes of the Lord your God are always on it from the beginning even to the end of the year. God has his eyes on what's going on over there right now as we speak. Now to understand this place, we've hit the person pretty hard, Abraham. Let's talk about this place, Israel. You need to understand it really is a bottleneck in the Eastern Hemisphere. If I want to move from Africa to Europe or Africa to Asia, I must travel through. By land, I must go through this area. In ancient times, this little piece of real estate becomes a constriction point for this hemisphere. If I'm a pharaoh like Nico and I want to go meet an army up at a place called Carchemish, we read about this in the book of Chronicles, I'm going to have to travel through this land. If I'm a Babylonian king like Nebuchadnezzar and I want to go down towards Egypt, I'm going to have to go through this land. Or if I'm the Romans and I want to go to Egypt, I'm going through this land. All of history, biblical history, and even intertestamental history, and later post-biblical history after our New Testament is a story of conflict of people trying to control this little bottleneck. It's strategic. It is geopolitically critical And if I ran down a list of emperors who've tried to do this, going all the way back to pharaohs, flashing forward all the way forward to people like Napoleon, or the British even, the beginning of the last century, everybody wants to control this piece of dirt. It's important. So to show it in perspective here, there's a map, you can see it, the red box is where the modern state lies. All of the routes, all of those bold routes, those international travel routes, go right up through this land. Those of you that were in Israel, we talked about the International Coastal Highway and its importance. Uh, The fact that if I want to move anywhere through this region, I've got to go through that piece of real estate. Now here's the problem with this, folks. Israel as a nation is a small little nation. It's not powerful like the empires around it. 
So it is going to have to trust God to keep them in this piece of real estate. Because everybody wants it. It's strategically important. To illustrate this, guys, to understand how big Israel is, compare it to California. I think one of the things that many of our, our visitors last year saw was that it's not as big as we think it is in our sanctified imagination. We have this idea, you know, I grew up thinking, well, it's kind of the size of California, you know, maybe, maybe uh, Lake Tahoe is kind of like Sea of Galilee, Dead Sea, that's kind of like the Salton Sea, and it's kind of like similar. No, 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 it's small, very small. You see how it fits? It could fit between here and Sacramento. In fact, looking at it in perspective, and by the way, I always like to show this for those of you from the other Holy Land, Texas. Almost the distance between Dallas and Houston. Yeah, I spent my days back in the promised land, so to speak, when I did four years in Dallas. So basically, that's a comparison. Now, let me compare it to the whole United States. See how small it is? I think somewhere in our mind, we think this is a big area. No, it's very, very small, very small. And because it's small, it's very vulnerable. Now, to help us understand this even further, this is a modern map of Israel, okay? If we were to start at the very north, the northernmost modern Israeli town is a town called Metula, way up on the Lebanon border in the north. Uh, for those of you guys that went with us last year, we didn't go up to Metula, but we probably could have seen it from Tel Dan. If I were to get on Highway 90 and drive from Metula down to the very end of it, if I can maybe show you on this map, from up here, Metula, all the way down to Elat, it's about 290 miles, it's about a six-hour drive. Now, at its widest point, and I'm looking right here near where the Gaza area is, this is where all the, this is where all the conflict is right now, this, this area right here. From here over towards the Dead Sea area, it's about 85 miles wide at its longest point. On average, we go up here to Jerusalem from basically the area around um, this region here, Ashdod, some of the cities around this region, suburbs of Tel Aviv now, over here is less than an hour drive. It's about 45, 50 miles. Or to put that in perspective, folks, if you were to get into your car, drive to Santa Clarita, it's about the same distance. That's how wide the entire country is. Kind of surprises people how small this country is. Now, when you get up here in these northern areas around Netanya, Herzliya, Tel Aviv, to the West Bank, you're only looking at about nine miles there. Israel as a nation feels very constrained by this geography. Everything gets pushed into this if you're traveling north and south. Now, to compare it to the Middle East on the whole, Israel as a nation is one-eighth of one percent of the entire Arab Islamic Middle East, most of whom either hate them and want to get rid of them, or at least preferentially would prefer they not be there, but they're willing to work with them there. You get this sense of, of isolation, this sense of, of uh, remoteness that many people in Israel will feel with their enemies around them. Now, following through with this, folks, there is a plan. Okay, I only got about five minutes, and this is where Matt will be very helpful next week. Not only is there a person, Abraham, that God has made a promise to that this land will be your land, your descendants will occupy this land, which, by the way, they are. Not only is there a place that's a very geopolitically strategic place that they're going to be asked to occupy. 
I've had some of my Israeli friends that will say, you know, it would have been easier if they gave us someplace else. <laughs> you know, here we are. We're right in, the, right in the bullseye of the Eastern Hemisphere. And everybody wants to control us, take us. And you look at the Isra- Israel's history, you can just run it through. You can talk about it. You can talk about the Assyrians, the Babylonians. Talk about the Persians, biblically. Later, the Greeks. Later, the Ptolemies, the Seleucids. Eventually, the Romans. And usually, we stop there because that's where NT stops. So we, I could keep going. You got the Byzantines, the Islamic, Muslim period, then later, the Crusaders, then the Mamluks, then the Ottoman Turks. Most people don't know this history. And then eventually, the British after World War I until the modern state was founded in 1948. So, what is God's plan for this? Okay, let me just offer some quick suggestions here. Regarding the spiritual conflict here, that God is moving history towards the completion of his theocratic kingdom. I'll show you this in a moment, folks, but history is moving somewhere. It's moving somewhere decisively. More to come in a moment on that. But secondly, we need to recognize that Satan wants to thwart that plan. He will do everything in his power to disrupt this. Um, and, I, and again, I don't want to belabor the point with all of you, but we can see this as we look at the history of this nation, things like the Holocaust, the Shoah. We look at things like what's happened recently, the horrific things that happened down in the southern cities of uh, the modern state. Horrific. Certainly we look at the book of Daniel, that Michael, the archangel, struggles. He is the one who's over this land, struggles over this land. As Satan tries to do it. You can read this in, Deuteron- in Daniel and as well as in Revelation. So to answer the question, where does this end? There is an end to it. Matt's going to talk about this. I love this section in Zechariah 14. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. By the way, guys, one year ago today, you were doing that. You're on the Mount of Olives with me. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. Then the Lord my God will come and all of the holy ones with him. History will culminate. Now, where do we go with this? I've only got about three, four minutes left. So let me just give you maybe some thoughts. What do I do with this? You've given us this information, Greg. What do I do with it? Let me give you some thoughts. So what? I always like to ask the question, so what? So, so what? Here we go. Certainly, there's a lot happening in the Middle East that's going to affect us. So I will jokingly say to some, maybe it's time to buy a hybrid. Gas prices are going up. So, I'm kidding. You can go see Vinny if you need one, right? (laughs) You know, you were thinking about buying a Tesla? Maybe you want to think about that now, right? Not really. What what do we do with this? Okay, so what? Where do we go, folks? Let me go with this. Recognize that history is about God's plan, not our comfort. I think Francis Schaeffer, years and years ago, back in the 1970s, said it best. He said, too often American evangelical Christians are too concerned about personal peace and affluence. That's what we focus on. And forget Christ's words that we are to seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. That should be our priority. Not our creature comforts, 
not living peacefully where our lifestyle is not disrupted, I think that's the wrong place to begin this conversation. History is decisively moving towards something. And God, every, every piece that is moved, even what is happening currently in the Middle East, is part of that plan. History is moving somewhere. Secondly, I want to avoid wild prophetic speculations and conjectures based upon contemporary events. Folks, in my position with what I do, I've had people stop me and they're trying to tie events into prophecy and is this... You know, certainly everything is moving towards a plan, and we know that, right? So to say that what's happening over there is not important would be incorrect. But I want to be careful. Back in the 1990s, when the Oslo Peace Accords were happening in the early 90s, I had people at my church saying, is this the signing of the covenant in Daniel? I said, well, maybe. I don't know. Let's see how it plays out. You know, if it is, then I've got to change my eschatology, because if I understand correctly, I'll be removed from here before that. So if this is this, I've got a theological problem. All right, just FYI on that. But I'll have people come up with the wildest things. I had a guy one time, folks, that was trying to convince me that Ronald Reagan was the Antichrist. I said, how in the world did you come up with that one? He said, it's so obvious people miss it. Count the letters in his name. Ronald Wilson Reagan, 666. Now, this is a guy that needs a hobby. (laughs) Fair enough. I've had people send manuscripts to the university that they've been writing about in times. And you will see, if you ever get to Israel like I do regularly, I'll see these prophecy tours, and man, they know how to sensationalize everything and whip a group in, and they make tons of money doing it. If you're going to study biblical prophecy, be selective in what you read. I'll say that. Now, there are two extremes with this, folks, and I want to be careful with my time. One extreme is to blow off all prophecy and say it's unimportant. And remember how much attention God gives to it in Scripture. It should never be minimized. You know, we get in debates about premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial. One of my friends calls himself a panmillennial, a pan out in the end, right? You know, how do, how do we think about that? The other extreme is get so so caught up in the sensationalness of it that we lose the fact that I need to be ordering my life around this. So. Oops, going back, let's triangulate from Scripture, as I've said, not contemporary news or talk show hosts. I had a guy one time, I heard this on the radio, very famous talk show host, said, I could go over to the Middle East, I could solve this entire thing in 15 minutes. And I wanted in the pers- worst possible way to get on my phone, call them up, say, look, I'll put a million dollars on the table. I'll mortgage my house. I'll do everything I have to do to get the money. If you want to take me up on that bet, you can't do it in 15 minutes. That's nothing but sheer hubris on the radio. If you think you can solve this problem in 15 minutes, it took 4,000 years to get here. So guys, let's watch it on the news. Be careful with news, all right? Certainly, I would encourage, and we're doing this here at church, study God's plan. This is books like Daniel, Matthew 24, 25. Certainly, the book of Revelation. Matt's going to take us into Zechariah starting next week. We're going to wade into the deep end here. There's some good stuff. Man, I get to chapter 14 now. I'm going to get excited. That's good stuff. Kind of culminating history for us there. As we wrap this up, find comfort in the firm future, the blessed hope. Christ is coming back. I, keep that, I try to keep that on my mind. In the midst of a, just an insanely busy life that both Kelly and I live, you know, I want to keep in mind that Christ is returning. And one day I will stand before him And I want to be thoughtful of what that actually looks like. 
For some of you, you may need to, to, ahead of that, get right with God, so to speak. For others, it's maybe readjusting priorities, readjusting what is important to me. But I need to keep in mind that history is moving somewhere. Whether I like it or not, it's going there. Okay? So finally, as I wrap this up, just a couple of fun, quick fun things to think about. Talk to your friends when they ask you, what in the world is this going on over there? And you got a chance to talk to them a little bit about it. Uh, keep your eternal, non-temporal perspective. Read sound biblical materials. We have some of those in our church library. If you need some help, just ask me. I could recommend some books that maybe could help with this. I would certainly encourage you to avoid reading fictional accounts. These uh, fictional things that are out there I don't find are particularly helpful and sometimes confusing for people who have a hard time distinguishing fact from fiction. You know, I want to be careful with that. Finally, I'd encourage you to visit Israel for yourself. You know, it's safe. Um, Chapel City's planning on going back. Matt's going to talk more about this later in 2025. It'll be a good chance to go back. And kind of see for yourself. Those of you who are there have a different perspective, I'm sure, as you watch the news, having been there. In fact, Psalm 48, it's interesting. Psalm 48, when you read it, says, Walk around Zion, count its towers, consider its ramparts. And by the way, those are commands in Hebrew. Do it. I like to read that my first day in Jerusalem when I'm working with groups. So let's read this, because today we're going to fulfill that, which some of you have done. Visit Israel. Now, the last thing I want to say, and I've got to stop here, is we need to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. The psalmist reminds us in Psalm 122, pray for the peace of this place. And that's what we want to do now. Matt's going to come up today and lead us in a little season of prayer to pray for Jerusalem. Okay? Thanks, Matt. Thank you, Dr. Bailey. And one of the struggles when we start talking about this is how do we pray for Jerusalem? Uh, it can be very, very easy to fall into uh, an unintentional but very common move of praying for a political solution to this or praying for a military solution to this. Don't forget that as we've been through the Minor Prophets, we've seen Israel try the same thing, haven't we? They've looked for a political solution to their problems. They've looked for a military solution to their problems. And if we're not careful, we can fall into the same trap. If we are praying for the peace of Jerusalem, and we ought to be, how then do we pray? Well, once again, God's word guides us. What ultimately brings peace to Jerusalem? It is not that Jerusalem finally makes the right alliances or that Israel finally builds up her armies to defeat her neighbors. Their existence isn't guaranteed by their own power, and it never has been. What finally does bring peace to Jerusalem? It is the culmination of God's plan as he changes the hearts of his people. As he radically transforms their hearts, then comes the peace. So what do we pray for when we pray for the peace of Jerusalem? Quite frankly, it's very similar to the prayer that I hope you pray for your neighbors and your family. Radically transformed hearts. That those people in that place would find their hope not in a zeal for a God that they are familiar with, but in submission to his son, Jesus Christ, who is the savior of the world. We pray for God to be just. We pray for those who are suffering mightily in this time. 
And we recognize that none of this contention, none of this turmoil falls outside of God's understanding or God's plan. So I would encourage you to pray along those lines as you move through your week. And the wonderful thing about it is you can pray knowing that God does have a plan for those people, for that place. We pray with confidence in the same way, by the way, that we pray with confidence toward God's sovereignty over the situation between Russia and Ukraine, over God's sovereignty uh, between the struggles in our own homes and in our own hearts. Peace is found through one means in every conflict. God happens to have spoken specifically toward this one. But will you bow your heads and pray with me, and we will pray specifically for this for a moment. Lord, we lift up your city and your place. Not because there's something magical about that dirt or those people, but Lord, because you, in your infinite wisdom and power, have chosen a people and a place where your glory will be made known among the nations. Lord, we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. God, we pray for the very real human suffering that is happening in the Middle East right now. Families torn apart, lives cut off, unjust, brutal things that kind of defy our imagination. And Lord, you know. So we ask that you would comfort the broken through the power of your spirit. We ask that you would deal justly with the wicked And we know that there is no escape, even if that happens in this life, that you are eternally just and will deal with sins. Lord, we pray that you would turn the hearts of the people toward you. Jesus Christ, the only hope, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. But Lord, you have promised that you will call to yourself a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. You have promised that at one point you will turn the hearts of your people back toward you, that as Zechariah says, they will look on the one that they have pierced and they will mourn. Lord, hasten that day when your people find hope in you and you alone. And Lord, we pray that you would work out your sovereign plan among the nations. We rejoice knowing that nothing thwarts your plan, not our foolishness, not human sinfulness, not our lack of clarity. You alone are good. You alone are God. And you have the right, the authority, the will, and the power to execute every one of your good and perfect purposes. And so we trust in you. Be our peace. Put the gospel in our mouths. And Lord, be the peace of your people. And we ask that you would transform their hearts as well. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.